Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. September 11th, the 49th anniversary of the infamous Chilean coup of 1973, when General Augusto Pinochet put a ferocious end to the revolutionary experiment and promise of the popular unity government of President Salvador Allende. Last week, on September 4th, Chileans held a referendum to approve or reject a new progressive constitution drawn up by very diverse constituents, specifically excluding the traditional political class, in order to create a new constitution to replace the reactionary Pinochet constitution that was imposed in a fraudulent plebiscite in 1980. Sadly, it was rejected, in fact, trounced. We spend the hour with Chileans Pablo Abufam and Oscar Mendoza to get their analysis of the process, the scope, and meaning of the rechazo, or rejection, and their view of what happens next. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to begin our discussion today on the monumental defeat in Chile last Sunday, September 4th, of the proposed constitution. And we're going to be speaking to Pablo Abufom. He's a translator, a member of the Movimiento Solidaridad. He's the editor of the Strategic Debate magazine or Revista Posiciones. And he's also part of the editorial collective of Jacobin America Latina. Pablo took part in the massive social protest movement of October 2019 that won the demand for a constituent assembly to write a new constitution. He has written widely on that movement and this process, which he sees as the highest expression of the popular revolt. Just last month, Pablo wrote a significant analysis of the problems of the campaign for the new constitution and what it entails which we're going to be discussing. But first, today is September 11th, the 49th anniversary of the brutal coup that put an end to the promise of the revolutionary process in Chile under popular unity from 1970 to 1973, and of course, under the president, Salvador Allende. On Sunday, as I just mentioned, they had the plebiscite for the new constitution, and it was resoundingly defeated. 62% of the voters in Chile rejected the adoption of the new progressive constitution, leaving in place for now the fraudulent constitution that was imposed by the dictator Augusto Pinochet in 1980 that has acted as a straitjacket to needed reforms. The new constitution was the most ecologically advanced in world history, it was also socially and economically advanced, promoting universal health care, decent education and pension funds, access to water, sovereignty over mineral resources, the care for animals and children, things that generations of Chileans have been fighting for. It also granted personhood to nature, protecting rivers and air and forests. It extended democracy, established gender parity, and popular participation granted indigenous peoples the recognition that had been denied for centuries. All of that was rejected. And we're really fortunate to have Pablo Abufum with us to get his understanding of the process and the defeat. So Pablo, welcome. And sorry that, you know, such a gut punch this result last week. But let's first start with your perception of that defeat, and then we'll go to the facts of the Constitution and the referendum. Hi, Susie. Thanks for having me again. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a huge defeat. It's uh, definitely a, a bad result for in, in the election. I think that the first question is, what was a stake for that referendum, right? Because... I mean, we can have different analysis depending on what exactly was rejected on Sunday. I think that there's one idea that what was rejected was the actual 
project for a new constitution that resulted from the draft that resulted from the convention, right? And that's a project that included all those things you mentioned. I think that it's not that easy to claim that what people rejected so massively was that project. And the first reason is that the right wing, who was elected only with a minority in the convention, decided to abandon the idea of drafting a new constitution or even contributing to that process and decided to start a dirty campaign against the convention itself and then against all the different articles that were approved in the process even before the constitution was being drafted. So they had an advantage of almost two years of a campaign against the constitutional convention and against the new constitution. They were always against the idea of changing the constitution. They only wanted slight reforms, if even any reform at all. So that's one thing. I think that what was a stake in the election was not exactly what people thought of the actual project. It was more about who has the ability to dispute the political process in Chile And that means that the right wing definitely had the upper hand on that fight. I I think we can also claim that it was not exactly the project for a new constitution that was rejected, at least not by everyone, because what people say that they rejected, what people say in, in polls or in opinion polls, is that they rejected what they were told to reject in the sense that they were told that the new constitution was going to take their houses away, that the new constitution was going to strip them of rights that they already have, that the new constitution was going to tear Chile apart in 12 different nations because of the recognition of indigenous peoples. And so, of course, people were against that. We're in the middle of one of the biggest economic crises in the past decades. So people don't want their rights taken. People don't want to lose their homes, right? So if people who are not involved in politics, who are not normally agents of change in their own communities or are involved in organizations, and only consume politics through the media, social media, they were told that that was the the project. And so rejecting that, it's, it's a bit obvious. I mean, we would all reject that, right? And so that's one thing. I think that the economic crisis we're living now has left many people, a majority of people, in very vulnerable circumstances. And so what the right wing did was to exploit those vulnerabilities, to exploit that fear of losing rights, to transmit something that was not the actual constitution. And they, they knew that. I mean, their talking points were completely different from the actual project, right? So, so I think that's the first thing that we can say about that. And this is, of course, in all of the articles that I'm reading, they begin with the distortions that the right with their very well-financed campaign put out there and that people, they also said that there's going to be violence and that women will have the right to have an abortion right up till the moment of birth, practically. And that these were, I guess, very new and unsettling ideas for people rather than, as you just said, addressing inequality and the economic situation. The other thing, of course, is that because people are so discontented about what's going on in the society. And the president, the newly elected president, supports this constitution. There's another reason that they go, well, we're angry with him. So we'll, uh, this is Boric, will vote against what he is proposing. The other thing that I think is important and I want you to address is that this is a really a new constitution, a new process. The new constituent assembly was not made up of the traditional political class. And there were many articles of the Constitution, and, and you said a lot of the voters who were part of the rechazo or rejection did not read that or just read the hype around it. So I want to ask how you see that part of it and whether perhaps even the uh, Constituent Assembly could have done a better job educating the population, or would that have changed anything? It's a good question. I think that We can't blame everything on the right wing because they're not all powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to to mention the weaknesses of the process itself and also the weaknesses of the left, the social movements and those sectors that actually pushed for such an advanced constitution. And the thing is that this constitutional process 
was the result of a popular revolt in October 2019. And by the time that revolt started, we already knew that the left and the social movements didn't have enough a strong organization or political party or whatever, right? So we didn't have enough political power to actually push for the change that we wanted at that moment. The fact that we had a constitutional convention that was defined very restrictedly by Congress and not by the people who were in the streets or, or by a broad social debate means that we already lost that battle in terms of how to configure the constitutional process itself. So I think that's one thing that this is the, the final step of the realization of the popular sectors in Chile of the left and the social movements and some of the indigenous groups that are more politicized and involved in this process, that we don't have enough political power with which to push for change and actually fight the political establishment in Chile. So that's one thing. And then I think that the role of Gabriel Boric's government is also very important. It seems that they were not really convinced with this new constitution, or at least they were very afraid of what the right was going to say if they got involved in mobilizing resources and educating the people, not just in terms of the, the content of some of the articles of the constitution, but the historical relevance of the project, the meaning of a constitution, the fact that constitutions don't really change the immediate conditions of life. So, I mean, the right was always appealing to the fact that this constitution was going to destroy people's lives in the short term. And that's not even possible. Constitutions don't do that. And I think that's an illusion that the left wing didn't really shake itself off in the sense that certain people didn't realize that constitutions don't do that. And so you can't just like write, draft a great constitution and then expect people to believe that they need to vote for that because it's going to change their lives immediately. And the right wing used that to falsely claim that the constitution was going to change people's lives for the worse. And so I think that the government didn't do much about that. And they decided to print copies of the constitution and distribute it widely around the country, but with not enough support in other kinds of media, like television, social media, or even like deploying people on the ground to talk about it, right? Well, let me and, just say when, th- yeah, 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 I was just going to say the last time we spoke, it was with delight that the members of the Constituent Assembly were new actors, that it did not include the old political class and those who had been in either governance from the Concertacion or or later the what came from the Concertacion and that it was a rejection of, of the status quo and this time would involve let's call it the ordinary population with all of their inexperience on this. And other people have criticized that this constitution is a grab bag of everybody's wishes and that you could see that there would be lots of areas where opponents would be able to say, well, look, it has even defends culturally appropriate food or it or it gives legal status to glaciers, you know, and while we talk about climate change, which it was very ecologically progressive, probably the most in the world, that this could easily be misconstrued. And I do want to ask you to kind of tie that together because the magnitude of this rejection was really surprising. I think it certainly, I have to ask, you know, and the people that you're talking, did you expect that to happen? And then, of course, to understand that many of those people who voted against are working class or poor, or it may well have and did vote for Boric. So put this all together for me, will you? It's so hard to grasp. It is. It is. We definitely didn't expect this result. I mean, the magnitude of the result, like 62%, is not very common to have that kind of result in an election, not, not in these times of very polarized political struggles. And so, so that's why it was also very surprising to have an 80% of people in October 2020 to vote for a new constitution in the last referendum. So I guess that many people thought that that 80% was sort of not guaranteed, but at least there was a definite connection between desire for a new constitution 
and this new constitution in particular. I still believe that the new constitution, the project for a new constitution is, is an excellent minimum program for Chile right now. I mean, it's definitely the basis for change in terms of overcoming neoliberal society in a way, or at least some of the pillars of what neoliberal policies have been in Chile. So for instance, the role of the state in, in the economy is very different in the current constitution and the new the project for a new constitution. The, in this new constitution, we saw that the state on a national level, but also local governments would be able to have a role in the economy. And that's something that we need to overcome the slow growth of productivity, the highly dependent economy of Chile regarding other countries. So I think that those things are definitely needed in Chile and also the establishment of social rights and cultural rights, etc., And so it's hard for me to believe that the kind of self-criticism that we need to do is to say, okay, this was too advanced. People are not ready for this. So we need to abandon this program and, and do something else. Right? Because some people are saying that in the left. Mm-hmm. And of course, in Frente Amplio, in the Concertación, they're saying, okay, this was too advanced and we need something less advanced because people don't really understand or don't want that or... No, I, I don't think that's the problem. The problem is that we, we don't have enough connection with people, not in terms of ideas or proposals. We don't have enough connection in terms of the working class in Chile is still highly fragmented and unorganized. And the responsibility of the left and the social movements is to organize that process of politicization. Let and me just you ask see, you, yeah, yeah. I want to make a comment on that because my first thought was, wow, this really is a demonstration of how crushed the organized working class is because this was literally the vanguard of the world working class until Pinochet came in and systematically crushed it. And it was 49 years ago, but you would think, you know, some of that tradition would survive. And I thought this vote showed that, you know, obviously many workers voted against it. And you just said, Pablo Abufom, that the problem was not the content but the ability, I think, in some ways to communicate that content because of the lack of either organizational maturity of those doing it. They didn't have those kinds of roots or strategic understanding of how you have to build a campaign of support, even the resources to do that. You know, there, And then, of course, you know, and I think we just talked about it, but maybe you could do it a little bit more, is by leaving out those sectors that would have that. I guess, expertise because of their role in the Concertación and afterwards, they didn't make the building blocks to the kinds of forces that would help promote this constitution. One last thing is just that, you know, I was so impressed when it, even though it perhaps some would say that this constitution was too detailed, it did define the state as social and democratic under law. And it did a lot of things that, you know, the population would support. Anyway, that's a lot. And I'd like to hear your comments. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, some people have been doing opinion polls these days, some like formal opinion polls, but also like interviewing people in the streets, independent media, and people who voted against the new constitution are for some of the things that are in that new constitution, like public free healthcare and free education and good pension system, that it's only going to be guaranteed with a public system, universal health, etc. So it's really unbelievable that people would reject. So that can only lead you to think that it's not that people didn't know about the project. It's that maybe they didn't care because this is very important too. 30 million people voted. That's new. The voting was voluntary from 2012 until now. There was an obligatory vote. People had to go. If not, they would be fined or something like that. And so... A lot of people didn't want to go to vote. They don't care about politics. And so some people in their own mind, they were voting against being forced to go to vote. Or they they were voting against the fact that Boric was not giving them enough money to survive the crisis. And I think this is very important because it's not about in the progressive middle classes. It's very common to think of everything in terms of education or communication, right? So people are just 
containers of ideas and either they have them, the good ideas or not, right? And so you have to tell them the good ideas and that's the role of the educated, progressive middle class. And so you saw social media after the election and people were saying in a very, I would say, discriminatory way that poor people were dumb because they had rejected what was good for them, right? Mm. And I, I think that's the recipe to alienate the very people that are the actual agents of change, of deep change. So that's why I think that the problem is not exactly in terms of communication, but in terms of the social circumstances and conditions that allow communication to happen in a meaningful way. So if you have a fragmented working class that is focused on surviving the crisis, that of course it's afraid of change, right? That it's being bombarded every day with fake news and exploitation of their own fears and also on people that, are, that it's not organized. So you have the perfect conditions for communication not actually happening, not really happening. And I think that's the problem with the, and the self-criticism for the left or the groups that were involved in the convention from the left or the social movements is that, that when we were working on drafting a new constitution, the right wing was working on exploiting those fears and that fragmentation and that lack of organization. And mm. we, we missed that. We didn't see that that was what's going on. Well, this is huge, Pablo Abufam. And it's also, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, too, that that it must have been very unsettling to people to see this sort of broad experiment in a way that spent the year putting forward all of these demands, as we've said, and it gives, you know, a lot of ammunition to the right, as you said. But I wonder as well how much they played on anti-immigrant, anti-indigenous population prejudices, because this really does, it was the first time you had indigenous populations involved in the writing of it, and it gave far more rights than before. And I think, you know, I'm going to say it because I read it so often, that this new definition of Chile as plurinational or multinational, rather, you know, flies right in the face of Chilean nationalism. And I just wondered, or maybe it's even racist to an extent or explodes the myth that Chile doesn't have a problem with indigenous peoples because that was solved a long time ago and they're assimilated. So what do you think? I agree. I mean, it, it was one of the main talking points of the right wing in the media. And we have to say, it's not when I say the right wing for this process, it's not just the traditional right wing. It's the extreme right wing of the Pinochetista groups, but also the old center left of the Concertación, who are mostly against the new constitution. For instance, Ricardo Lagos, the president, the first mm -hmm. socialist president after the dictatorship, and some of the Christian Democrats, famous Christian Democrats like Eduardo Frey, who was president also, they were against the new constitution. And so that was also relevant. This is a campaign that was built by the right wing in alliance with the center left. So the recognition of indigenous peoples and the plurinationality, etc., is one of the main talking points of the right wing against the new constitution. What they said was that this was going to destroy Chile as we knew it, as a unitary republic, because it was going to give them the political capacity to have their own government and all that, but then also legal independence. So we would have 12 different systems of justice. And so if you got into a car crash with someone from an indigenous community in the north, you would be judged by an indigenous court. And so you wouldn't have rights as a Chilean, that kind of crap, you know, it's like, you can't believe that it's true. You know that it's false and you say it anyway. So, but they, they did it. I mean, they're completely immoral. So we know that they do that. And this shows, I think, that the colonial nature of the Chilean Republic is very alive in Chile. It's not really, I mean, it's in a crisis because we see that in, in the South, in Mapuche territory. We see that that's even involved armed struggle. And we see racism against indigenous peoples, but also against migrants. 
And so what we see is that the idea that Chile is a mixed, a mestizo republic, that is a homogeneous republic of people who are not really white, but are not definitely not indigenous. It's, it's there and, and governments have been using that for some time. And so I think that racism has a very different nature in the States, for instance. It's not the same. The color line in Chile as in the rest of Latin America is very different. And also Chile is very different from Bolivia, for instance, right? Where you have, or Ecuador, where you have 60% of population who are part of indigenous people. And so it's very different. Having plurinacionalidad in Bolivia's constitution with Evo, very different from having plurinacionalidad in Chile with Boric, right? With, I don't know, with the political establishment, which don't really recognize. So I think this has reinforced that racism has also reinforced the fact that in Chile, the alternative for hundreds of years and still now has been between recognition and self-determination for indigenous peoples or extermination. And the Chilean state has opted for extermination for a long time with no exception. And so that's, that's why I think that they took plurinacionalidad as uh, one of their main points because they know that that's at the heart of the Republic and that they can use it against any kind of change. And especially, and this is the final thing, especially in a time in the past years, we've had a lot of political violence and armed violence in the South and the right wing calls it terrorism. And so they are using the rhetoric of war on terrorism Mm. when they're actually dealing with the the crisis of the colonial state. I'm so glad you said all of that because it explains it and it also is, you know, pretty depressing too, because it's obviously an issue that has to be dealt with in the, apart from the revindication of the history and of the right of indigenous peoples, which is incredibly important. It's unfortunate that that also gave an opportunity to the opponents of that to drown out the other progressive aspects of the constitution, which put an end in a way to the old constitution that enshrined neoliberalism, inequality, the limited role of the government in the economy and all of that, you know, has produced this inequality. And the new constitution had a lot to say that would address that. Those aspects would have been appealing, but got drowned out by, we know, race and division are easily exploitable. And clearly the way you put it now, they were able to do that. So, I guess I, I want to kind of move then, uh, Pablo Abafum, to what you think should happen next. This is not over. There still will be a new constitution, and there's still a crisis in a way of the constitutional order and what they're going to do. So, you know, you did mention that, you know, Lagos and uh, some of his cohort but were a part of the Rechazo along with the Christian Democrats. Bachelet was in favor, as you informed me. Boric was in favor, so there's divisions there, too. And all of this is important in this discussion of what's next. So now I'm going to give you the floor. (laughs) Yeah, so, well, even the right wing is now, I mean, some of the parties in the right wing are saying that we definitely need a new constitution because their promise during the campaign was we need to reject this one it's not that we don't need a new constitution, but we need to reject this one, right? So one of the slogans was, not this one, right? Mm. So when you told them, well, well, then you don't want a new constitution, they would say, no, it's not that we don't want a new one, it's that we don't want this one. Okay, so now after the rechazo won, some of them are saying that we don't need a new one. And that completely, exp- I mean, you had to expect that, of course, because they, they had never wanted to, change the constitution Pinochet. And we have to say that this, that the government also had a responsibility in the rechazo, in my opinion, because they said, don't worry, we guarantee that if the rechazo wins, there will be a new process. They said that months before the election. And that means that what you're communicating is that, well, then it's not that terrible if the rechazo wins, right? When what the current constitution says in the reform that created this process was, if the rechazo wins, we will continue with the 1980 constitution from the dictatorship. So 
so far, that's what we have. There's no change. And so now the government is leading a process of political debate among the political establishment parties to design a new constitutional process. We know that what they want is to be a more restricted process with less participation of indigenous peoples, with more participation of experts, as they call them. They've been telling people that, as I was saying before, since the right wing was doing a campaign against the Constitutional Convention and the representatives saying that they were irresponsible, that they were uneducated enough to draft a new constitution, etc. So now what they're saying is that we need experts, right? Not just common folks who just are experts on society because they live their lives in this society, right? So you don't need to be an expert to draft a constitution. I mean, you can use the help of experts to, I don't know, to draft the actual thing, but to think about it, to debate it, you don't need experts. So, but this is what they're saying. And they're, I think they're also appealing to this idea that the Chilean society is very conservative and very institutional in the sense that we tend to believe that if it's not institutional, it's not really serious or responsible. So it's a bit of a very conservative idea about how conservative we are, right? <laughs> that, that, that there's no possibility of change in that idea of being sort of like attached to institutions. So... We know that this is going to be a, a more restricted process, and that's something to be worried about. What they probably want is to draft a new constitution in six months or eight months. Some of them say that we need to take the draft that we already have and use that as the base and then like do some reforms on that. What I think is going to happen is that this process is not going to be as interesting as the previous one, that it's going to be more like a Congress, like a regular Congress with political parties, sort of like managing the whole process with less participation from social movements who are exhausted with the process, right? And that's the other thing we can talk about that later, but small organizations with not a lot capacity to like, I don't know, like hire people to work on this process for a year and a half. So it's going to be hard for the left and the social movements to get involved in this process. Nonetheless, I think that I think that we should. I mean, I think that these groups should get involved or try to uh, get into the struggle, mostly to defend the draft for a new constitution that we already have and not leave the arena for the right wing and the center left to do whatever they want. Not sure that, that the left and the social movements will have the same impact, but at least we can defend that and keep the idea that we need those changes alive. But then also what's going to define the fate of this constitutional process, this new constitutional process, is how the government, but also the left, that it's not in the government, how we deal with the economic crisis, how we deal with the worsening of conditions in Chile, as in everywhere, you know, the inflation is rising, there's a recession coming next year. And so the lives of people are going to be worse soon, even worse than now. So I think that's also, that's very important. I mean, if, we, if there's a lesson we need to take out of this is that if we don't address that, we won't win a new process. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to just ask a final question about that, because very much of this will fall on Boric and the way that he guides this process and lives up to the kinds of promises made when he was elected by, as you said, such a wide majority. He's done very well so far, even though, you know, as you mentioned, external economic forces, you know, that he can't control um, have played a huge role. Does he have much leeway in the months to come, let's say, while this new constitution is being drafted to address the way the state responds to the economic crisis, for example? How much power would a president have to deal with that? Because that problem that Boric is facing, that the left is facing in Chile, is one that the rest of the world is also facing. But you have the advantage of having you know, a very progressive 
president. So a lot is at stake here, how he handles this next period. Exactly. I mean, if the government is not able to address the crisis and do something to alleviate that, and if there's no new political force or alternative from the left, then the next government is going to be an extreme right-wing government, right? I mean, if Boric is, I mean, if they don't do something about it, and if there's no alternative, then the right wing is going to win, and it's going to be the extreme right wing. It's going to be caste. It's going to be the Pinochetistas, which is something that happens everywhere, right? It's like Obama before Trump, or I don't know, like any other, like Lula before Bolsonaro in Brazil. Yeah. So that's a problem with. Uh, progressive governments is that they're always stuck in the middle of the process of change in a way. And right now, the response of Boric's government to the defeat last Sunday was to change the cabinet and include members of the Concertación who are ministers of Bachelet or other Concertación governments. And so that's not a good sign. It's a sign that the government is looking towards the right wing of their own forces to sort of like stabilize the relationship with the political right and the economic right. And so they're sort of making some of the mistakes that I think governments in the last progressive cycle, the so-called pink tide in Latin America did, is that not taking decisive determined steps toward change. I just want to make a comment because Allende didn't operate that way, but he really was limited by respecting the Constitution as it existed. This, you know, would have given a new opportunity, but it also, as you say, raises the problem of, I guess, being bold enough to try to get those really progressive reforms uh, out there that would win support without alienating Certainly, you're going to alienate the right wing, but it's a very delicate line to kind of maneuver to be able to satisfy the population economically so you win support politically. And on the other hand, the pressure to move to the right and be more conciliatory and and more limiting and, and constrain the process. This is what I see as one of the biggest dilemmas. And of course, the left will have a huge role to play, as well as the massive social movement that brought this all about. Exactly. That's why I was saying that if there's no alternative, then we we really have a problem. I mean, you can't count only on even progressive or leftist governments to, to do change. You always will have people that are not part of the government, that are in parties or social movements or whatever, that are outside the government doing things. Because you can't have everyone in the government, right? Or the, the parties of the government. So... Mm. So we need, we need that alternative. But then we have, I think there's an ongoing debate within the coalition, the government coalition, and also in the left outside the government coalition. There's an ongoing debate about what's the way, should we moderate the program, the demands? Should we be more conciliatory or should we move forward with our program anyway? And I mm. think... That that debate is settled for Boric and his people. They are not the kind of leftists or progressives that are going to alienate the right wing in any way. That's been consistent with Boric since he was a student leader. He's not a radical. He's a progressive. And he's maybe on the more conservative side in terms of political behavior. He's a very interesting figure. He's definitely not Allende, right? Mm -hmm. While Allende explicitly said that his government was a government of the people, Boric and the rest of the presidents in the past 30 years insist on the idea that they are the president of everyone, right? And that includes the right wing. When you are the president of the right wing, then you can't be the president of the people. And I think that's one of the problems that we have. My main or general criticism of this government is that they don't trust in the people in us, that they have not used the power that they have as a government, the symbolic power 
not just in material power, but also in symbolic power to promote self-organization, to promote people as agents of change and not just recipients of that. And I think that's, that's very relevant. And I think that's going to be one of the issues that we'll see developing in the next years. Pablo Abufo, I can't thank you enough. And you've given a lot of ammunition, I guess, or material for us to continue this conversation as this process unfolds over the next six, eight months to a year. And I definitely want to have you back to discuss as that happens. Thanks so much for taking time with us today. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And I should just say, you should go read Pablo's articles. You can always get, I guess, Google Translate or something that appear in Jacobin America Latina and also in Posiciones. Pablo is a translator. He speaks wonderful English, as you can hear. We're speaking to him in Santiago, and he's the editor of Posiciones and part of the editorial committee of Jacobin America Latina. And he's also a member of the Movimiento Solidaridad, and he was very active in that whole October 2019 social movement that we're seeing some of the results of today. Pablo, thanks so much. Thank you, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Oscar Mendoza back with us. Today is September 11th, and it is the 49th anniversary of the infamous Chilean coup when Augusto Pinochet put a ferocious end to the revolutionary experiment and promise of popular unity under President Salvador Allende. And on September 4th, just a week ago, Chileans held a referendum to approve or reject a new progressive constitution, one that was born in response to the massive social protest movement and revolt in October 2019, just before the pandemic put a kind of halt on all of that movement. The demand that grew out of it, though, was for a new constitution to replace the reactionary Pinochet constitution that was imposed in a fraudulent plebiscite in 1980. A constituent assembly was elected representing the most diverse sectors of the population and basically excluding the existing political class. Their work produced the most ecologically advanced founding document or constitution probably in world history and granted personhood to nature, protecting rivers and air and forests. It extended democracy, established gender parity, and popular participation granted indigenous peoples the recognition that they had been denied for centuries and answered the need for universal health care, decent education and pension funds, access to water, sovereignty over mineral resources, the care of animals and children. All of these things are what generations of Chileans have been fighting for. Sadly, it was rejected, but in fact, not just rejected, it was trounced. We're going to talk to Oscar Mendoza to get his reasons for the defeat. And let me just quickly introduce Oscar. He's a social scientist. He specialized in international development. He's traveled extensively in the Americas, Asia, and Africa. He arrived in Scotland, where we're speaking to him this morning, as a political refugee from Pinochet's dictatorship. Oscar, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Susie. I'm delighted to be able to join you. Let's just go into, I guess, first of all, your overview of what the Constitution represented and how you explain the defeat. Well, I think your summary of some of the main provisions of the proposed new Constitution actually tells you quite a bit about one of the reasons why it was rejected. It's, it's a little bit like Santa Claus's list, you know. The work of the convention has been criticized for many reasons, some of them absolutely valid. And one of those, I think, is this approach towards a maximalist new constitution. I mean, basically going from a very traditional, as you described, reactionary, it's more than reactionary, it's a constitution, the current constitution from 1980, that limit the, the role of the state to a merely subsidiary one and really allows, you know, the free, <laughs> unfettered development of capitalism. 
inches. You're going from that with very limited provisions and more than anything, acting as a constraint for change to one that would have changed everything. And I mean, in, in a radical form. And I think that's one of the underlying reasons why when Chileans came out to vote a, a week ago, and the vote was mandatory, so that for the first time, large numbers of Chileans who have never voted for many, many years took part, they decided to reject it, and to reject it decisively. As I said, that's only one of the reasons. I wanted to ask you if you were surprised by the size of the defeat. I certainly was. I mean, I thought it was going to be close. And of course, both of us are not in Chile and are looking at it from afar. You're much more closely connected. But it it was clear there was a right-wing disinformation campaign, and some of the things that were being said were just patently absurd, and a lot of money went into that. But I don't think that explains the size of the defeat. And I want to know first, were you surprised, and how do you explain that? I think everyone regardless of how closely we follow events in Chile. And I'm probably better informed than a large majority of Chileans living in Chile because I read extensively newspaper journals, opinion pieces. I follow uh, different figures and I seek information from a variety of sources. And, And many of my sources are people who've been in government during the democratic transition. So... I was surprised by the size of the majority. I was not surprised by the fact that the rechazo, the rejection option, won, because every single opinion poll had indicated that the rejection option was in the lead. And I'm a scientist, you know, and I'm pro-science, and I believe in facts and figures. You know, I don't deny the reality, even if it's not convenient for us. But the size, the fact that the difference was so vast, that was utterly bewildering and very surprising. And I think that's why we have a duty to understand. Well, let's go there. First of all, can you just say something about a lot of the articles that I've read talk about the amount of money that went into the No campaign and the misinformation Can you just sort of give our listeners a little bit of the flavor of what that was about and then perhaps why that wasn't the only thing that caused this defeat? I think that ascribing to the rejection campaign, which was massive, very well funded, rich and powerful in Chile, obviously do not want change. To say that that was the reason or the fundamental reason, even though the campaign of lies and disinformation was really quite a thing. It was quite difficult to take sometimes because there were patent lies. It wasn't even nuanced. There were patent lies, though. But that wasn't the deciding factor, in spite of the fact that it was a very strong campaign, that the immense majority of the media supported that campaign. That, That wasn't the reason. There are many, many reasons. And let's start with a fundamental one. Fundamental one is that up to that point, for the last seven elections or so, and certainly the election to the referendum to approve the process for a new constitution, the elections to select the convention members, and subsequently the presidential election that brought Gabriel Boric, the most progressive political leader since the return to democracy, to power, they were all elections where turnout was very low. Even for Boric's election, the second round, it was only about 55, 56% of the electorate because voting was voluntary for all the. But for this one, for the referendum, it was mandatory. So that, you know, upwards of 80% plus, almost 85% of the voters, of registered voters, took part. So there was a whole universe of voters who haven't uh, taken part. And they are, in their majority, independent. They're neither right nor left. And they're pragmatic, more traditional Chileans. And they decided overwhelmingly that they didn't want the change proposed because it was too much, too quickly. And they didn't feel as if it was responding to their real needs of today. And the real needs of today 
are the same as the guy in Chicago, the guy in Glasgow, or the woman, you know, in Paris, or the child, you know, somewhere else, which is the cost of living crisis, the fact that employment is precarious, and that the rich are getting super rich, and the rest of us are having to lump it. And that didn't. I mean, the whole constitutional debate did not focus on any of those issues. And I think that made a decisive move towards rejection. I want to go further into this because what you're essentially saying, Oscar Mendoza, is that there's a larger electorate that took part in this and they have perhaps not been counted before or in the sense that their views, which you just stated, are more pragmatic. I don't know. I want to go into that. But some of the things that were in the Constitution gave a much bigger role to the state and called it a, a social democratic state or a democratic and social state and and did put forward ideas about the healthcare system and about essentially a safety net and other things that would go some way to addressing the existing issues and fears that people have about growing inequality. But on the other hand, like because the Constitution was so large with 388 articles, I wonder, maybe you can answer this, how many people just responded to the propaganda about it, didn't read it, and were so frightened by that that they voted sure. the way they did? Oh, no, I'm absolutely convinced that it would have been a small minority of Chileans, those who are highly politicized and involved and engaged, who would have taken the time to read the Constitution. So let's go into then, you know, exactly. You said it didn't address the most important needs or issues and that this is international. You know, this is. Yeah, yeah. it didn't appear to focus on the things that matter to people today. And it was too diffuse, too large, you know, too many. Nobody in their right mind was an ordinary person just going about daily business would have taken the time to read every single that. So they went by media reports, but also by the declarations and statements by you know members of the convention. And I truly believe that at this moment in time, Chileans, the majority of Chileans, not the extreme right, not the extreme left, I'm talking about the majority that are somewhere in between, they wanted dialogue. They wanted a peaceful, orderly resolution to the evident social conflicts and and morales of Chilean society. And they didn't get that. They got a highly pluralized, invective, intemperate language used on both sides, etc. So it was really something that very, very quickly, the initial months of the convention were just dedicated to obscure procedural debates endless votes on whether this was going to be A or A1 or A2 or A, and so on. And they quickly lost the confidence of the majority of people. Yes, there's still a progressive minority who were just delighted with all the changes and they thought, finally, we're going to have this paradise you know, of a constitution. And, uh, but the majority of people just lost confidence. There were some convention members who were totally lacking in the required seriousness, even the political seriousness, the gravitas that you need to be involved in changing how a country is going to work. I mentioned you know, a couple of examples to you before the, the interview, Susie, about one of the convention members dressing up as a Pokemon character to attend convention events. Another one who was just a, a fraudulent charlatan who pretended he was ill with cancer and shaved his head, etc., etc., to garner sympathy. So all those things damage the convention. But that's not all. There were other reasons. The convention members had a very large percentage, about a third, of independent candidates. Yeah? But they didn't Mm. represent anybody, in a sense. They represented, yeah, the people who elected them. But the election of the convention members had less than 50% turnout. So they really represented very small segments of the people who bothered to turn out. And they didn't have an ideology. They didn't have a plan for the country. They don't have a strategy of how Chile should be in the 21st century. And the established political forces were marginalized completely. (laughs) 
Let me ask you a question about that, because this has been a critique. On the one hand, people saw it as positive that the Constituent Assembly would be made up of people who were not associated with any of the governments or the prior constitution. And on the other hand, because it was so independent, I've read critiques that they didn't try to make any blocks with existing left and left of center, let's say at least, political parties and win their participation. What I'm hearing from you, Oscar Mendoza, is that the constituents were inexperienced and that it was a grab bag of everybody's progressive ideas. And I think you say in the note you wrote to me that it lacked cohesion. On the other hand, because so few people actually read it, they wouldn't have known that it lacked cohesion, but would be open to the kind of interpretation of it. That's why why the the discourse and the media chatter and social media in particular, because, you know, most people are now getting their information from social media and those are mostly bubbles. But that's where campaign to oppose, to reject the proposals was very well run and very effective. They basically took every single little thing they could, for example, the fact that some convention members don't respect national symbols or or national customs who are against things like the rodeo. Rodeo in, in central and southern Chile, where I come from, is a huge thing. And people in their thousands, attend the, the corridas and, and support, but also they have their relatives, their friends, you know, and so on. Yes, there's a lot of people with loads of money who actually run the horses, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's something that people like, and they do at the very kind of campesino level. They have their small rodeos as well. So that's one thing. The fact that I think I mentioned this, in the rallies, public rallies for the approval or the approval option, we had a variety of symbols, banners, feminists, a rainbow, indigenous flags, etc., etc. The only flag that was lacking, or it was in very small numbers, was the Chilean flag, yeah? And Chileans are nationalist people. You know, I always refer to the fact that, you know, we Chileans, I, I don't count myself in that number, but we Chileans, because I'm a Chilean too, are chauvinists. We think that Chile <laughs> is the happy copy of paradise, of Eden. You know, Feliz Copia del Eden, says our mm. national anthem. So we love things <laughs> to do with Chile. You know, the national football team, soccer for you guys, <laughs> the, the, the flag, you know, Independence Day celebrations, etc. Empanadas. Very, yeah, <laughs> empanadas and vino tinto. And Allende understood that. But the approval campaign did not. Let me just ask you about that, because, of course, this is, I think, a huge part of what happened. And for those of us outside of Chile, just think of the crisis with the miners several years ago and the rallying around even Piñera, the right wing president at the time, as a kind of show of Chilean nationalism and patriotism that you're describing. And I wanted to ask in terms of the issue that the Constitution says that it will be plurinational, it will be multinational, and that indigenous peoples will get some kind of sovereignty and much more recognition. And it just seems that the myth of Chile, that every time I ever talk to Chileans or see it, it is always stressed that Chile doesn't have a problem with indigenous peoples. They were assimilated and that Chile proudly has a European heritage. And it, I just wonder what how much that plays into it, because the idea of a plurinational Chile goes right against this other national narrative that you've been describing. No, no, absolutely. I think this idea of the plurinational of the many uh, peoples was rejected soundly. Uh, Chileans don't accept that. They don't believe that, but particularly because the rejection campaign played on their fears and their their prejudices by insisting that the new constitution would grant rights to the very small number of indigenous peoples, you know, there's about 5% of the population, something like that, you know, no more than 7%, say, more rights than other Chileans. I think that somehow this constitution would give a privilege place to these relatively small minorities. And there, they played into the whole thing of the culture wars, identity politics. Yeah? They portrayed every single thing as a them and us. 
we are concerned about real issues of our lives, of putting enough money on the table to feed the family, of getting an appointment to see a doctor when we're ill, having to go and wait for hours, etc., etc. These things are not really what we need now, and we certainly don't need them quickly. But it's also another underlying, you know, and very important reason is the failure of the politics of the moment, the failure of the Boric government to deliver the changes that people want to see. There are many reasons for that, and there are good reasons sometimes, sometimes not. And the mistakes made, you know, by ministers, you know, given erroneous statements or ill-thought-out statements and so on. So the people put all that together, you know, the Boric government supporting the approval, the approval option, and they took their chance, in a sense, punish that as well. You, you haven't done what you said you did. You, you haven't delivered, even though the government of Boris is only in its infancy, in a sense, you know, it's only the first few months. But people don't don't discriminate when they're when they're making the decision. They're not happy with the government. They're not happy with this potpourri of a constitutional proposal that is like an endless wish list. They're not happy about attempts to in inverted commas, undermine the Chilean nature of our country, our constitution, our symbol, our national anthem, our flag, and so on. And they didn't accept it. And that's why the majority was so huge. And we need to be self-critical because I, I am in support of President Boric and I'm in support of a new constitution. But in order to achieve that progress, we need to convince people, not berate them, I am actually absolutely furious with a section of progressive thinking in Chile that is going around social media right now. It could be happening right now, blaming the Chilean people for this vote, calling them stupid, ignorant, doing the right work, voting against their own interests, etc. You know, that's not way to convince people to support change. And the other thing is that there is a climate of concern for ordinary Chileans. There is a lot of crime and violence. There is a violent conflict in the southern region where the Mapuche indigenous people are. There is massive illegal immigration. Hello, United States. You know, <laughs> and something new for Chile, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. New, but not so new, because Chile has been the main repository of Latin American migrants in the last years because of his better economic performance and more opportunities for work and, and so on. And all those things, people are dissatisfied. They want to see something better. And they took their chance to say, we're not happy. And we don't think this constitution provides the order, stability, and gradual change we want to see. And that's so why they're rejected. I think this is really good, Oscar. And you've, you basically said, you know, or anticipated my questions about why people voted that way. And of course, anytime there is economic inequality and rising inflation and all the things that you've said, people naturally blame the person in power. Boric is new, inexperienced, and has not had any chance really to do very much, as you said, just a few months. And so all the ire about people's situation is concentrated on the president. And as you just said, since he was in favor, they reject. That seems self-explanatory. That was an element. Absolutely. Yeah. That was an element. It's not and, then the, and then you put you put together the inexperience and perhaps like it's I don't know if I would call it elitism, but that the constituents were so concerned with stressing these rights that are universal that they sort of ignored the people that they're talking about in the process or didn't try to make bridges and explain what was going on. And that's also a, an element of inexperience. No, right? no, absolutely. absolutely. So, I, I think to a large extent, the convention went into itself. And although, although there were efforts to connect with civil society, that civil society was only that portion that was engaged in the pro-change movement and in support of the new constitution. So it didn't reach all those other people who never participated, but they did vote last Sunday. <laughs> and all the other people, I mean, the progressive movement, as I see it, didn't even convince itself to support this new constitution. Because if you look at all the data, it's undeniable 
the significant segment of the rejection vote came from people who supported Boric and the Constitution and, and so on. The, you know, the Assembly and voted to have the constituent process. So it's not that it was only hidden right-winger. <laughs> well, in the last few minutes, Oscar, it's a huge question, but what do you think should be the next steps? Well, the next steps, I think, are clearly the ones that President Boric is leading, which is to convene the political forces. And here it's important to note uh, the Chilean right-wing political forces, they have now to fulfill their promise. They say, let's reject so that we can reform and have a better new constitution. So they're committed to having a new constitution. So they'll have to play ball somehow. But it'll now be mostly the responsibility of Congress and the political parties, exactly the people who were excluded from the process so far. They are now the key players and the ones who will lead the process. But as Allende said, you know, and it's the anniversary of the coup, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. So I believe there will be change. It'll take time and it won't be perhaps what we wanted, but there will be change. Well, I think with that, there's almost nothing left to say, Oscar. That was absolutely a wonderful summing up of it. And of course, we all hope that this new change and this way that it will be reformulated will not ignore what's in this new constitution, but add to it and give it the kind of, I suppose, acceptability and coherence that you noted was lacking. Yeah, it's to be hoped that not all the work that was done will be just thrown out in the trash and that some of it can survive into new proposals. Oscar Mendoza, thank you so much for that really comprehensive view about the scope, nature, and causes of the gigantic defeat of the new constitution that was proposed in Chile. Oscar is speaking to us from Glasgow, Scotland, where he has lived since the coup of 1973, which we're marking the 49th anniversary of today. Oscar's a social scientist. He specializes in international development, and he's traveled extensively in the Americas, Africa, and Asia, and he follows everything about Chile extremely closely. Thanks, Oscar, for being with us today. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.